Good morning. It is Friday, December 1st. Welcome to another edition of the 801. On board this morning, we'll have news, sports, weather, and time checks. I'm Kent Garrett, and you're listening to WIOX Community Radio, 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills. And we are streaming to the world on WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. Plus, you can hear us at 107.5 FM on the SUNY Delhi campus. Coming up, the truce ends and the war begins again. Plus, it turns out that if Israeli officials knew about the Hamas battle plan a year in advance. And what is next? How does the war end? Now it's time for this morning's headlines. The Israeli military said that it has resumed combat against Hamas in Gaza after accusing the group of violating the terms of a ceasefire. The truce lasted uh, seven days and saw the release of 110 hostages held by Hamas and 240 Palestinians prisoners held by Israel. The truce lasted seven days and saw the release of 110 hostages held by Hamas and 240 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Here's more from the BBC. Israel and Hamas have resumed fighting in Gaza after the seven-day ceasefire expired. The Israeli military has accused Hamas, which is designated a terrorist group by the UK, of violating the terms of the truce agreement. 110 hostages held in Gaza were exchanged for 240 Palestinian prisoners during the pause in fighting, as our Middle East correspondent Hugo Vashega reports. After 55 days, together again. Mia Shem, who's 21, welcomed back by her family. Another hostage freed from Gaza. This is her mother, Karen, speaking days before her release. I just want her back now. You know, our life would never be the same. But we will be all right. The minute she will be here, we'll be fine. The truce between Israel and Hamas has now expired. The wait for the families of the captives continues. Visiting the region, the U.S. Secretary of State had this message. I made clear that before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians. Overnight, in the occupied West Bank, more Palestinian prisoners were freed from Israeli jails. Being back home doesn't mean the end of the suffering. Mohammed Nazal left jail on Monday, but he isn't yet totally free. Both of his hands were fractured in beatings by Israeli guards, he says. He now needs help to eat, drink and go to the bathroom. They arranged us so that the elderly prisoners were put in the back and the young in the front. They took me and started beating me. I was trying to protect my head. And they were trying to break my legs and my hands. Mohammed says abuse of Palestinian prisoners was common in Israeli jails after the Hamas attacks. These are the bruises where, he says, 
guards used sticks, their feet and dogs to assault them. Israel said it wasn't aware of those claims and that Palestinians are legally detained. Israel was the target of the Hamas attacks, but the pain is also being felt by Palestinians. And we can speak to Hugo now from Jerusalem. Hugo, very good morning to you. Uh, this is a very significant day, isn't it? Because the temporary ceasefire has finished. It is over. What is happening on the ground? Good morning, Charlie. So it is a little bit after eight o'clock in the morning here, and uh, the Israeli military has announced that it has resumed its uh, offensive against Hamas in Gaza, and uh, it has accused Hamas of violating the terms of that uh, temporary ceasefire. And shortly before uh, the pause in hostilities was set to expire, uh, the Israeli military said it had intercepted a rocket that was launched from Gaza. Now, reports uh, from the Hamas-run interior ministry suggest that uh, there have been uh, multiple areas of Gaza hit by Israeli airstrikes and uh, the Israeli uh, army has confirmed that uh, Israeli fighter jets are now uh, striking targets across uh, the territory. Now uh, we heard from a Palestinian source close to the negotiations that talks continue for an extension uh, of this truce even though fighting has resumed in Gaza. Now obviously this still has uh, led to the uh, release of more than 100 hostages who are being held in Gaza, but more than 140 people remain in captivity in Gaza. So obviously the relatives and uh, friends of, of those hostages are following uh, these developments very closely. And also there are fears now that the humanitarian situation in, in Gaza could worsen um, amid shortages of uh, basic supplies for days. We've been talking about uh, the humanitarian crisis there for the population of Gaza. You go for the moment. Thank you very much. The New York Times reports that Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened, and that includes documents, emails, and interviews. Here's Chris Hayes from MSNBC News. We are following some breaking news this hour, a truly remarkable report out of the New York Times about the extent to which Israel was warned about Hamas's intentions to start a war ahead of the deadly October 7th attacks. Quote, Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened, documents, emails, and interviews show. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. The approximately 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. According to one intelligence analyst in Israel, this was not merely a plan for an attack. Quote, it is a plan designed to start a war. 
Ben Rhodes served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama, and he joins me now. Ben, this, this just published before he went to air, so I just want to sort of set the table for folks. I mean, it's not just that there's a battle plan. It is the battle plan. It involves things like uh, paragliders going over the fence. It involves machine guns and drones to take out security cameras. It involves initiating with a, a barrage of rockets, uh, motorcycles going over the fence. I mean, it's literally the, the plan. And they had it inside the Israeli intelligence apparatus. What, I, what's your, as someone who works in the United States and security apparatus, what is your reaction to this? I mean, it, it's absolutely astonishing, Chris, because it's your point. Sometimes you have warning that something might happen, but very rarely, if ever, do you have this level of specificity. Uh, I mean, before I was in the Obama administration, I worked for the vice chair of the 9-11 Commission on the 9-11 Commission. And this would be analogous to the U.S. government having had information that, you know, al-Qaeda was planning to try to fly planes into these targets from these airports and had people in flight schools. I mean, this is a level of specificity that intelligence almost never gets. Um, and that's what is so astonishing about this reporting. It wasn't just like a concern that Hamas might be up to something, they might be trying to plan something big. You usually get those types of warnings, you know, reflections and conversations or intercepted communications. This was the literal plan of what they actually ended up doing on October 7th within the Israeli system for a full year. Um, that is something, that is an intelligence and policy failure that goes beyond anything that I can think of, frankly. Yeah, I was trying to search for something, some analog or precedent, and was coming up empty as well. Then there's another additional aspect to this that in some ways is even more damning, which is that at least one analyst in a unit in the Israeli intelligence system basically watched or saw that there was a rehearsal about six weeks before the attack and once again basically went to a superior and said, it looks like they're rehearsing the plan from that we have, Jericho Wall, and was again, as again, according to the reporting we have in the New York Times, encrypted emails they've obtained, basically told, don't worry about it. Yeah, um, uh, so seeing the rehearsal, and the thing to bear in mind, Chris, and we don't know yet how far up, I mean, there are questions that remain. The questions that I would have are, was this plan briefed to Prime Minister Netanyahu or people who are government ministers? How high up did this go in the system? Um, I'd be surprised, it'd be weird if something of this scale wasn't, but that'd be its own version of a failure. Right. The thing that people have to bear in mind here is that not only was there not an action taken to disrupt this, but in fact, on October 7th, what had happened is the IDF that would normally be at that border had been redirected up to the West Bank because they were busy protecting uh, settlers, Israeli settlers who were engaging, often initiating clashes with Palestinians. So actually the border wasn't even at the normal status quo of security, it was less. Uh, and that's the policy failure to redirect those resources up to the West Bank. Uh, you would think that if you had this kind of planning and you were seeing this kind of activity by Hamas, um, that in, we have reporting of additional warnings from Egypt and other places about this potentially. So you would think that you would be trying to do everything you could to fortify that border and at least hedge against the fact that this plan might go forward, if not try to actively disrupt it. None of that happened. Yeah, the, the, you know, we've, we've sort of, as we sort of dealt with the aftermath of October 7th, and I think as, as Americans tried to sort of figure out you know, a, a way to understand it. And 9-11 has, has stood out, right, as a, as, a, as a sort of touchstone or, or sort of an American domestic experience. 
Um, and one of the ways that, that the reaction in the politics of Israel has been different than the U.S. is that there's not been there's been a huge rallying around the, the, the IDF and the war effort uh, among Israeli politics and in public opinion, but not around Benjamin Netanyahu, who has incredibly low approval ratings, who in the most recent polling I saw today was only drawing 23 or 24 percent of the vote. And, and you really got to wonder what this does to an already extremely tenuous political position in a situation in which Netanyahu, it is understood, is going to face the music when the war ends, but also has every political incentive imaginable to extend the war as far as possible, precisely because of this consensus view held across the ideological spectrum in Israel that he will face the music when the war ends. No, that's right, Chris. I mean, Netanyahu had been a political survivor for a long time. He'd become less popular because of corruption investigations, certainly because of the kind of judicial coup that he was engaged in. There were huge street protests, remember, against Netanyahu before October 7th. The one thing he had is that his nickname, his self-given nickname, was I'm Mr. Security. You know, uh, you may not like certain things about me. You may not like some of my coalition, but I keep Israel safe. And that was shattered, obviously, on October 7th. And with each of these reports about the kind of incompetence or failure to protect that come out, that political standing suffers even even more. Uh, I think, frankly, what is worrying is precisely because he's in such a weak political position, um, the only thing that is keeping him in office is this kind of emergency unity war cabinet that he is leading. But the problem with that, the challenge from that strategically and politically, and I think from the United States perspective is, as you said, that gives him every incentive to try to perpetuate a war, because I think everybody in Israel that I talk to, uh, most political analysts agree that when the music stops, like he's going to be replaced. Uh, that's just the nature of Israeli politics right now. Um, and that I, I, that's an awkward position to be in, frankly. It's an uncomfortable position to be in, particularly, you know, you have a massive aid package working its way through the U.S. Congress. You have huge international opinion inflamed against the scale of this Israeli military operation. You obviously have a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. All these things are happening. This report comes out. Uh, he's a very politically damaged leader. And the question is, does he need to be replaced now? Um, can we really, you know, can Israel afford to wait for some end of this military operation that has a kind of open-ended duration to it. Netanyahu himself has said, we may have to have an open-ended administration of Gaza, uh, which might suggest that there's not necessarily going to be a clear end date to this war from his perspective. Yeah, that's all of that is, I think, really, really well said and, and, and one of the main sort of contextual issues here. To, to go back to your experience, and one of the things I thought about this again, I think, from the first moment that the report started to come in of, of the scale of this attack. Right. And 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 how kind of, you know, famous in many ways the the Israeli intelligence and, and security apparatus is, you know, it's it's one of the most sophisticated in, in the entire world. It's, it's known as such, um, you know, this question of like, how did this happen has been there from the from the first day. And. I've also wondered, like, will there be some 9-11 commission, right? <laughs> Is there going to be some? And this makes, it just seems, it ha you have to do, I mean, there's a lot of questions raised by this, like, how far up did it go? Who's this colonel who said no? Why did people think they weren't going to do it? How far did they circulate the reports that they were rehearsing, et cetera? No, that's right. I mean, Chris, my immediate reaction, right, on October 7th is how could this have happened? Because just to give you one example, Israel controls the entire internet and telecommunications infrastructure in Gaza. So sure, you know, Hamas can try to communicate offline, but the idea that you could plan something of this sophistication without it interacting with the telecommunications network that Israel has visibility in, I just didn't get that. 
And, and part of what we're seeing now is actually they did have this information. And to your point, I think in Israel what they've said is, well, there'll have to be a commission of inquiry. There'll have to be some look back at this. But again, like what politicians do, I think Netanyahu's approach has been, that's for after the war. We have to wait until after the war to look back. We, we have to be focused on what we're doing in Gaza now. The problem with that is Israelis need to have confidence in their political leadership, in their military leadership, in their intelligence community, the people that are carrying out the war, the people that yep. are making hugely consequential decisions. And I don't know how you can have that confidence when there's reporting like this. This was this has always been an issue in just understanding the sort of, you know, the the at the kind of ground level, the tactical response from Israel, which was from one day to the next, you go from a totally blind, apparently right to this horrific attack, you know, the most brutal and catastrophic in, in the country's history, I think, in, in, in many ways, uh, though they've suffered many attacks in Israel, um, to pr prosecuting a war that's going to depend on some intelligence, a lot of intelligence. Where are targets? Where are things? So you're, it's the, all the same apparatus. It's the same folks. It's the same units. It's the same colonels. It's, it's all the same thing. Uh, and so, yeah, that question of how much faith people can have, and particularly the, the, the Biden administration, the U.S. government, as it prepares this aid package, I think only gets more acute after this remarkable bombshell reporting from the New York Times published tonight. Ben Rhodes, um, always good to have you, sir. Thank you very much. A seven-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas ended early today. Each side blamed the other. Israel said Hamas had violated at the operational pause and, in addition, had fired towards Israeli territory, while a Hamas official said the talks to extend the pause were, quote, thwarted by the Israelis who had refused an offer to release elderly male hostages, and the bodies of three Israeli hostages. The Washington Post could not immediately verify either claim. Here's more from the Al Jazeera News Channel. Now, Hamas has released a statement holding Israel and the Biden administration responsible for the resumption of hostilities. The group says it offered to hand over the bodies of an Israeli family and released the father to allow him to hold their funerals, as well as hand over two other Israeli detainees. Hamas says Israel refused to continue with the ceasefire agreement because it had already made the decision to resume fighting. Now, earlier, Hamas's spokesman Osama Hamdan spoke to Al Jazeera about the end of the ceasefire. It's the time now to make it and say it clearly. The cause of the problem is the occupation. The real solution is not to find temporary poses. The real solution is to find mechanisms and ways to put an end to the occupation. We uh, have exerted efforts. We will exert efforts, even with the renewal of the aggression against our people. We will do our best to face the aggression. Everyone is uh, considering our efforts as uh, resistance who are facing the aggression. We have spent uh, some good time to have conversation with all the mediators 
and we need to thank the uh, efforts of Qatar and Egypt in order to reach a formula to put an end to the aggression. But the aggression has stopped everything, and uh, the Zionist regime is rejecting everything because uh, uh, he doesn't want, but as a resistance, we will face the Israeli Zionist regime, we will defend our people, we will be open for any efforts that uh, aims at putting an end to the aggression within the benefits and the interests of our people. Let's bring in now Al Jazeera's Sarah Hayrat, who's in Tel Aviv for us. So, Sarah, there was always, of course, the risk that this would happen, the resumption of this war, because Prime Minister Netanyahu had been adamant that the war would continue. What are they saying about the, the resumption of this new phase of the conflict? Yeah, there's so much uh, to unpack here, Folly, but one thing that all of uh, uh, the Israeli uh, uh, government, the war cabinet, the prime minister, anyone uh, making these decisions, they all agree on one thing, that this had to be resumed. Uh, and they'd been warning about this for a while, actually, saying that uh, if Hamas hadn't provided, for example, the list that they had expected, if there was any violations, uh, they would immediately uh, resume uh, the war. And, the, and in the words of some of those, uh, for example, the defense minister, that it would be ferocious. Um, now, they've blamed Hamas wholeheartedly on this uh, for various reasons. They said that they'd violated uh, the ceasefire by firing rockets. We know that these rockets have been targeting uh, the southern towns all morning. Uh, and then also, in a statement from the prime minister's office, uh, he said that uh, it had not met its obligation to release all of the ho with women uh, hostages today and has launched rocket attacks that I just mentioned earlier. We have got official figures that have also been released uh, by uh, the Israeli uh, person who's in charge of keeping uh, tabs on the captives. It seems that 20 of those remaining are women. In terms of the response from Hamas, well, they've said and they've told uh, Al Jazeera that they provided, it seems, three lists mm. uh, or three options of names, including uh, the bodies of uh, Bibas, the family, yeah. uh, which is a mother and her two children, a four-year-old and a 10-month-year-old, and he was the youngest hostage. They're saying that they were providing those on that list, that they were happy to hand them over, and also that they had offered to hand over their father so that he could be there and attend uh, their burial. This has never been verified by the Israelis. They've maintained until last night when Daniel Hagari, the spokesman for the Israeli military, had maintained uh, that um, it was unverified information whether they'd been killed in the first place and said that Hamas was using this as a propaganda uh, tool. Uh, this seems to have been the sticking point that was discussed yesterday in Israeli media, that they didn't want to have anybody's on that list of the 10 captives that would be uh, released. And it seems this has been one of the major sticking points. So the main sticking point uh, from the Israeli perspective is uh, the handover of the bodies, as you say, of the Bibas family, uh, the, uh, the, the mother and the child who, the, who were killed and the father was still alive on the list of prisoners. How is that going to play out? And how is the resumption of the war, Sarah, playing out with the families of the captives? 
For the families of the captives, I mean, we've been here now for the whole duration of this ceasefire. And one thing they keep saying uh, to us and one thing we keep seeing in terms of the rallies is that they want to ensure that all of the captives are brought back home. When you're seeing videos of uh, unifications between those that had been taken on October 7, being unified with their parents, with their loved ones, and those videos are being shared, although there haven't actually been interviews with the ones that were held captive, but their families are speaking and that's their priority. They want to ensure all of them are returned. It has come as a major shock, I will say, for the Israelis, especially when it comes uh, to the Bibas family, according to Hamas, being killed by airstrikes. That was that fa this family, the Bibas family, has been, if you like, the face of the campaign to bring them back. So to hear such news from a couple of days ago and it being unverified until now, that is a major, major cause of concern for the families because because they don't want those that are remaining, which is now standing at more than 130 people, to also uh, be targeted or hit in these airstrikes that are happening at the moment as we speak. And that is one of the biggest concerns for them. They want their families home, they want them here, and they want them safe. Sarah, thank you for the update. Sarah Hayrat, live for us there in Tel Aviv. So what is next? How does this war end? Leading Palestinian expert Rashid Kaladi spoke with Glenn Greenwald. Thinking about that, the Israeli midterm or long-term plan, meaning what happens when this bombing campaign finally comes to an end, when the ground invasion either turns into some sort of partial occupation, reoccupation of Gaza or some international force or whatever. If you look at the scope of the destruction in northern Gaza, there have been reports that 60% of all buildings, if not destroyed, are architecturally compromised, not safe to inhabit. The sewage system, the electrical system, the hospital system are completely destroyed. I mean, to some extent, northern Gaza has been rendered in a large degree uninhabitable in terms of just any kind of modern society. How would these internally displaced Gazans who are now in southern Gaza and dispersed throughout the country really in any reasonable or meaningful way get back to any kind of meaningful or normal life in northern Gaza, even if the Israelis were to permit that? Well, I think rendering northern Gaza uninhabitable was actually a declared war aim. The Minister of Defense, Galant, various Israeli generals said that. And when you cut off electricity and you cut off water, you are in effect making the place uninhabitable. When you destroy uh, or render unusable most of the hospitals in northern Gaza, when you destroy uh, schools, when you destroy a variety of other uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, you are rendering northern Gaza uninhabitable. Uh, now, the claim is that this was intended to destroy uh, Hamas infrastructure. But uh, my guess is that there was, as they said, a desire to render that part, at least, of Gaza, uninhabitable. Now, uh, you can see 
that there's a doctrine here. It's a doctrine that was first adopted in 2006, or at least first enunciated after the 2006 war on Lebanon. And it was the so-called Dahia doctrine, Dahia being the southern suburbs of Beirut, which were flattened by Israeli bombing in 2006. And uh, the man who is now a member of the war cabinet, a former chief of staff by the name of Gadi Eisenkot, actually enunciated this. He said, we will not you know, accept proportionality. We will act uh, unproportionally, and we will flatten villages. We will do what we did to the Dahia. In other words, we will, we will, we will destroy in order to destroy in a punitive fashion. And I think that is what Israel is doing. Now, what that means for the day after, well, I think it's connected in the first instance to what they were hoping, which is to get people out of Gaza, decrease the Palestinian population within the borders of mandatory Palestine. In other words, uh, launch another stage of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. If that proves impossible, the next best thing is to squeeze them into a smaller area, maybe push them into southern Gaza. But I don't think that any of these things are necessarily beyond rendering Gaza uninhabitable, which the Minister of Defense said. Um, I don't think any of these things are entirely clear. And I think, as, as you suggested, there are multiple factions in this government. The military has its own views. Uh, the, the prime minister, who basically wants to continue the war and not be not not lose this government, which keeps him in power, uh, failing which he would go to trial, presumably. Um, and then other factions within the government, the Likud party, the extreme right wing parties, which want to see ethnic cleansing as soon as possible and as much of Palestine as possible and so forth. So it's to me, frankly, and I'm reading the Israeli press carefully, it's not clear that they have a clear idea or a unified idea of, of what they want to do with the Gazans uh, once this military campaign is over, whenever it's over. On this stated goal of destroying Hamas, I don't think we ever got clarity about exactly what that means, although the Israelis made clear from the beginning Netanyahu from Netanyahu on down, they said, we don't mean we're going to erode the power of Hamas. We don't mean we're going to undermine it. We don't mean we're going to weaken Hamas. We mean we're going to destroy it, eradicate it, remove it from existing in Gaza. Obviously, with a war like this, facts are hard to come by. So let's just take the Israeli numbers, the numbers given by the Israeli military. According to the Israeli military, they have thus far killed 1,500 to 2,000 Hamas militants. So let's take the maximum number, 2,000. And according to the Israelis as well, there are 30,000 Hamas fighters. So they've killed one-fifteenth of all the Hamas fighters that existed at the start of the war. Presumably there's going to be more anti-Israel radicals and people who hate Israel after this destruction that they've witnessed, after the amount of death. That, but let's just, just keep, keep that number in place. 30,000 Hamas militants. That would mean in order to kill all Hamas militants, just the minimum necessary, I would assume, to achieve this goal of destroying Hamas, they would have to kill 15 times more Hamas militants than they have thus far. And at the current rate of civilian death, that would mean that they would basically end up killing 200,000, 250,000 Gazans in total. Do you think there is any world in which the world just stands by and watches something like that take place? No. Absolutely not. The United States wouldn't tolerate it because the Biden administration couldn't tolerate it because public opinion is already against this war. A majority of Americans are in favor of a ceasefire. They want it to stop. They do not accept the Biden administration and the Israeli government's uh, insistence on continuing the war until, quote unquote, Hamas is destroyed, whatever that means. I mean, whether it means killing 20,000 odd more 
Hamas militants and God knows how many thousand more civilians, tens of thousands more civilians, uh, and destroying even more of the infrastructure of Gaza. If 60% has already been rendered uninhabitable and unusable, God knows how, many, how much more there is to destroy. But I do not think that world public opinion, Arab public opinion, but for that matter, American public opinion, will put up with that. I think there'll be a rebellion within the Democratic Party. I think the president would be guaranteed of losing the 2024 election. Mm -hmm. And I think that he would he would be obliged to stop this long before we got to those apocalyptic numbers. So I don't think that there is any possibility of our reaching uh, anything like those numbers, even if those numbers are realistic. I mean, let's let's assume that they're highly exaggerated, which I think is the case. I don't think there's any chance of killing 10 or 20,000 uh, uh, Hamas militants, uh, no matter how many civilians Israel kills. Um, and no matter how many tunnels, you read the Israeli military correspondents, and they're saying they've done very limited damage to the tunnel system. Well, they've dropped how many thousand tons of bombs a day, a week, on, on, on Gaza, and they still have only uh, uh, minimally damaged the tunnel system? They've killed 2,000 of, by their estimate, 30,000 militants? I, I just, it just does not seem to me within the world of possibility um, that this could go on to that extent. How it stops, however, I, I don't know. You're somebody who's uh, followed this conflict for most of your career as a scholar, as an academic, as a historian. You've referred to on a couple of occasions this public opinion that has turned against the Democratic Party, against Joe Biden for his support of what's taking place in Israel. I do think there's an interesting dynamic that it is the case that for a lot of years now, maybe going back to 2014, the Israeli-Palestinian issue has pretty much been on the back burner of American politics. So you have all these young people who have started to pay attention to politics for the first time. A lot of people have paid attention to politics for the first time only because of Trump. This is the first real look they're getting at Israel and the Democratic Party's relationship right. to it. And you have these mass protests all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people in major Western cities. Like, you have to go back to the Iraq war to find protests on this level. As somebody who has followed this, this conflict, has been in the middle of it in so many ways for so long now, is this a kind of radical or fundamental change in terms of public opinion and the amount of opposition to what the Israelis are doing and the way in which the U.S. is supporting them? I mean, there has been a trend in this direction, but I think you put your finger on it. I think that this is a moment when a newly awakened generation with new access to information uh, is, for the first time, really looking very carefully at things that are happening in Israel and Palestine. And they clearly do not like what they see. There's an NBC poll that came out the other day uh, of voters from 18 to 34. 70% um, of voters in that age group disapprove of the Biden administration's handling of this war. That's an astonishing percentage. I mean, a majority of Americans want a ceasefire, but that 70% of young voters, that includes Republicans and independents. I mean, that's a remarkable number. Uh, and, and it's part of a trend that I think has really been accentuated by this war. Uh, but that's been going on for actually a very long time. The polling over many years shows a drift uh, away from sympathy for, for Israel and, and, and towards uh, greater sympathy uh, for the Palestinians. And this war has crystallized that, I think. Yeah, so for those of us who have followed this debate, this conflict for a long time, there's all the arguments that everybody can rehearse in their sleep 
you show people the death tolls in, in, in Gaza and people say, oh, Hamas uses them as human shields, Hamas operates from hospitals, they operate from mosques, all the arguments that everybody knows and knows the responses to. I do want to ask you about a couple of perspectives that are, I think, the most potent ones that Israelis and pro-Israel supporters in the United States and the West offer. And I want to begin by asking you this. Uh, in almost every war, there's two questions, broadly speaking, I think, that need to be asked. One is, is, is there a moral or legal justification for the war, for the force being used? And then, is it a wise use of force, even if it's morally justifiable? Will it produce benefits on the whole as opposed to detriments? After the October 7th massacre that did kill hundreds of civilians, whatever that number is, 500, 800, 900, whatever that amount is. Do you think Israel had a legal and moral right to use force in Gaza against the group and the people who perpetrated that attack? You know, the, the problem with that question is its framing. Um, Gaza had been under siege for 16 years. Israel had assumed that it could live a peaceful, quiet life while putting its boot heel on the Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. And sooner or later, that had to explode. Now, it exploded in a particularly ugly fashion with these massacres. It resulted in the highest death toll among Israeli civilians in the entire history of Israel's wars since 1948. So there was going to be a reaction, necessarily and inevitably. But if you step back one minute, I think it's very clear that if you occupy and if you imprison and, and, and blockade and besiege a population, sooner or later, that population is going to react violently and negatively. Uh, Israelis talk about this as if it's irrational. It's not irrational at all. Uh, the, the, the nature of the violence is, of course, horrific that, that, that was carried out on that day. But when you do this to people and you pretend that out of sight is out of mind and you can live a normal life in suburban communities with other people in a cage within a couple of miles of you, you are storing up problems that sooner or later are going to erupt. So did Israel have a right to occupy in the first instance? Did Israel have a right to kick those people out in 1948 in the second instance? I mean, you can go on and on and on. The people in Gaza are 80% refugees from the areas that Hamas invaded on the 7th of October. So it, it, it really depends on where you start and where your perspective is on this. If you assume that everything was peaceful, and this is France and Germany, or this is uh, 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 country A and country B, where country A simply decides to launch a murderous assault on the civilians of country B, then of course country B has the right to uh, 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 counterattack. But this is not country A and country B. This is an occupier and an occupied population. And this is a settler colonial project where the people living in settlements around the Gaza Strip are living on lands that used to be belong used to belong to people who are now have now been living, or their ancestors, their, their parents and grandparents have been living as refugees in the Gaza Strip since 1948. And you have to factor that in. Uh, does an occupying power have the right to attack an occupied population? Uh, you should be asking, I think, those kinds of questions as well as the question, what should Israel have done? Well, Israel shouldn't have been in occupation of the West Bank in the Gaza Strip in the first place. It should have, there should have been a Palestinian state. There should have been any number of things should have been, the absence of which have led to this horrific situation that we're in, where 
at least 800 Israeli civilians have been killed, at least 450 or more Israeli soldiers and security personnel have been killed, and apparently over 15,000 Palestinians, both civilians and, and, and militants, have been killed. And we're not at the end of it. I mean, assuming that this ceasefire breaks down over the next several days, we're going to see many, many, much higher casualty tolls. And I think at the end of this, you'd have to ask that question. What was achieved? What was the point of this? Have they stored up more enmity for Israel? Have they improved Israel's position? Are Israelis more secure as a result of killing 15,000 Palestinians, including a, 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 a huge number of children and women and other non-combatants? Uh, I don't think the answer is yes. I don't think you achieve security uh, in that fashion. And I'm not just saying that from an Israeli perspective. I would say that from a Palestinian perspective as well. Uh, uh, sooner or later, there has to be a political resolution of this. I don't think we're nearer to a political resolution as a result of this, not only, I think, because of whatever happened on the 7th of October, but because of the 15 times greater toll that has so far been inflicted by Israel since the 7th of October. And that toll will only, unfortunately, probably increase. I'm always amazed at the ability for Western media outlets and governments to just define history however they want. They did the same thing with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They just pretended that the conflict between Russia and Ukraine in the West began on February uh, of 2022, as opposed to having extended many years back, without which you can't possibly understand what happened in February of 2022. And of course, the attempt to pretend that there was no conflict until October 7th, and it all started when Hamas invaded Israel. But your answer essentially says that the way for Israel to, the best thing for Israel to do from its own perspective, from the perspective of morality and legality, is to resolve the underlying conflict so that there's no more motive to, for Palestinians to attack Israel. The standard argument, which I am interested in hearing your view on, is that Hamas has made very clear they don't want a two-state solution. The reason Netanyahu propped up Hamas was precisely because he thought they would work symbiotically to prevent a two-state solution so that wouldn't resolve the hostility of Hamas, say Israel defenders. And then more uh, interestingly, I think I want to ask you, is a two-state solution possible given the extent of the settlement project in the West Bank? I mean, my, my short answer to the second part of your question is no. Unless you deal with occupation and colonization, you should not even utter the words two-state solution. A two-state solution in which Israel continues to settle or in which 750,000 Israeli citizens maintain their, their residence and their, and their colonization of Palestinian lands is not a two-state solution. It's a one-state solution with a, a one-state, one Bantustan solution. Uh, a situation in which Israel continues its occupation is not a two-state solution. And every Israeli offer, generous offer, has included Israeli control of the Jordan River Valley, which means it's not a state. I mean, imagine if a foreign country controlled the border with Mexico and the border with Canada. Would we be a sovereign state, the United States? Of course not. Um, your, your, the, the first part of your question, um, I, I think that you, you have to look at this in terms of how you end this conflict. Do you end it in a fashion which maintains a structural inequality where one group has rights and security at the expense of the rights and security of the other, where one group proclaims, as the Israeli uh, nation-state law proclaims, that only the Jewish people uh, have the right of sovereignty in the land of Israel. Uh, 
or do you have a, a, a solution, whether it's a one state or a two state solution, uh, in which both peoples and every individual have equal rights? How you do that, I don't know. I don't think that a two state solution is possible in present circumstances because nobody's talking about the elephants in the room. Nobody's talking about ending Israeli security control. Nobody's talking about ending settlement. And if you don't do that, even if the Palestinians accept the measly 22% of historic Palestine, uh, which comprise the West Bank, uh, occupied Arab East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, even if they accept that unjust partition of Palestine, uh, you have to get 750,000 Israelis out of there or figure out how you how they continue to live. Heavily armed Israelis, heavily armed Israeli settlers backed by major components of the IDF, if not most. Precisely. And that's it for this edition of the 801. Thanks for joining us. I will talk to you again on Monday. And don't forget the 801 does not leave the station. It is on the station. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I'll leave you with a song called uh, One Day. I'll leave you with a song called One Day. It's a group of uh, Arabs and, and uh, Israelis singing together for peace.